Hello, and welcome to the Bethesda Podcast feed. It's here you can find all of our recorded services. And for more information, you can visit us at gobethesda.com. We hope you enjoy. And his lovely wife, Reagan, up here. Going to be having another grandchild. It's exciting. So, Alexander, come bring the word, son. Good afternoon, and I'd again like to give a special shout out to, I think, the VIP, our little kid that's in the building right here. It's my first time being a dad, so I'm going to be asking every dad for advice for the next long time. (laughs) But I'm not sure if I'm going to be preaching or teaching, but I guess we're all about to find out here soon. But... I know Dylan and Maddie are here from Life Point Times Past. And it works out because I'm, I don't know if anybody remembers the Wednesday night series Expedition Early Church back from, what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> the seven year series. I'm going to be revisiting that in Romans 8. So if y'all want to stand once again for the reading of the word, we're going to be reading Romans 8.15 out of the NIV. It says that the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. And I'm reading out of the NIV. I know we got, it's not quite what's on the screen, but the spirit, that's on me, by the way. (laughs) The spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And tonight, I just want to talk just for a little bit on adoption to sonship. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your presence that is in this place tonight. We give you praise and we thank you for showing up in this house. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, Romans 8.15, is my favorite scripture in the Bible. There is so much depth to these 34 words in the NIV version, and it accomplishes so much, communicating several things while acting as a powerful transition device in the narrative of the book of Romans. And I'm about to use a metaphor. I've used this metaphor, I think, a couple years ago, and I think it bears repeating. It was on a different topic, so it doesn't count. I need a piano, though. Reagan has heard me use this example many times. (laughs) So we're going to have a quick little music lesson real quick. For everyone who doesn't know, that is a major chord. Sounds nice and happy. Nice and happy. This is a minor chord. Sounds really intense or kind of sad. It's got this more dramatic flair to it. Then you get chords like this. That's a B-flat minor diminished. (laughs) And that sounds nice and ugly, right? But those kinds of chords have a purpose. Because you can take this chord here. Sounds horrible. I think we can all agree. But if I use the power of two hands, you can... 
you can use those chords as transitions from one nice sounding thing, you get that ugly sounding thing, and then you get that nice resolution is the word. You can use those to resolve. So you can take those nice little ugly chords and you can turn those into something good. And in this case, I like to think of the precursing verses as those transitionary chords. Because Romans 8.15 is this beautiful verse about how we are now sons of God. We are children of God. And that takes place right after Romans 7. The last two verses are these ugly, gut-wrenching service that says, What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This ugly, horrible transition verses into these beautiful, you have not received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. These beautiful verses, I'm going to have to skip through this because we I will be done by 8 o'clock. <laughs> but at this point, the... Uh, the <laughs> I'm listening to my stomach. (laughs) But at this point, the the chords are ugly, and our need for salvation is clearer than ever. This is the difficult part, and Romans 8 serves to revolve this. A man much smarter than me named Douglas Moo writes that our passage here, the one on adoption into being children of God, is the transition from the believer's present to the believer's future. Because when Jesus fills us with his spirit, we are adopted into his house and made children of God. We are transformed again and again until we are more like God. Paul writes of our powerlessness over sin and over the things of this world. He says that we are slaves to sin, to disease, and to death. But when we are adopted, when we are filled with his spirit, We are freed from those things. There are two ways to approach this scripture. Now the context is almost set. I'm almost into the main point of the message. The context is almost set. There are two ways to approach this scripture. The church in Rome that Paul addresses was majoritively a Gentile church, but there was an extraordinarily large Jewish representation in this church. And the subject matter that Paul writes about has to do with the relationship between the Jews, the Gentiles, and the promises of God. He writes very heavily on this topic. So when Paul starts to write on adoption, he's really laying the groundwork, and he is really hitting a lot of theological points in very few words. He uses few words to address many things. So all throughout the book of Romans, you see this theme, and I believe it comes to a head here. So let's go into these two viewpoints real quick. I told you, it's kind of a blend between preaching and teaching. Now, for Romans, adoption was a very well-known practice. Perhaps two of the starkest differences between our modern view of adoption and the Roman view of adoption is twofold. Typically, in Roman culture, the the adoptee was a full-grown male, so someone who was old enough to be a dad, 
And the purpose is, it's less of a matter of nurturing somebody, and it's more so a matter of inheritance. It's almost like a business deal. The idea is that a Roman would be able to handpick the recipients of his inherited possessions, authority, or honor. So perhaps the most famous example is the Roman rulers. Look at Octavian. His rise to power was defended on the basis of him being Julius Caesar's adopted son. Octavian later would take vengeance on the murderers of Julius Caesar, and the Romans viewed this as an honor on the basis of him avenging his adopted father. So when Paul writes that we have received the spirit of adoption to sonship, what this means that is in the same way Octavian was able to operate under the authority of the name of Caesar, in our adoption, we become what the Bible calls joint heirs with access to the full authority of the name of Jesus. That sin, that sickness, and that death that had total control over us no longer has any power over us because we are joint heirs in Christ. What that means is that whatever the authority of the name of Jesus is, we walk in that authority. We are able to speak that authority. That's why I love songs like I Speak Jesus. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That's why we baptize in the name of Jesus. Because when you speak that name of Jesus over a situation, when you pray that name of Jesus over a prayer cloth and give that anointing to a situation, God can and God will move in that situation. There is no stopping it. So it says, we have not received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption into that blessed name. So first, I want to clarify something real quick. There's something communicated in Romans 8.15. There is this comparison between slavery and adoption. And these are more similar than you would think in this context. So Roman slavery is not like the slavery that we think of today. It was very different and there was a limitation that was placed on people's freedoms, but ironically enough, there were hosts of people that would voluntarily go into this kind of slavery. And Paul takes advantage of this context. The slavery that was offered at this time was tough. You would give years of your life, but there was the chance of social mobility. You see, at the time, a maximum of 10% of the Roman Empire were citizens of the Roman Empire with all the rights included in that. At, at least 90% were slaves, immigrants, or other forms of other statuses of people that were not citizens. So slavery offered a pathway to citizenship in the Roman Empire. You see, if you were freed as a slave, you would become a Roman citizen. And in that case, you have voting power. You are basically safe for the rest of your life because very few people were able to have this luxury. So when Paul says that we are no longer slaves, he makes this comparison between adoption. And I promise that I'm going somewhere with this. He makes this comparison to adoption because adoption was also a means of social mobility in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, if if I were to be adopted by a Roman citizen, I would get their citizen rights. So when he says we are no longer slaves to fear, but we have received adoption, he makes this comparison. You see, I don't have to give years of my life away 
in order to move myself out of the slavery that I am in. I don't have to give of myself years and years and years to the fear that has captivity over us. And that, that's for everyone. We do not have to be slaves to fear in the hopes that maybe one day, and it was never guaranteed, the hopes that maybe one day, I'm going to be free. Maybe one day I will be free of this fear. And that's really a false promise. In that bondage to fear, you're never really going to be free from it. But by the power of God, we have been adopted. You see, you don't have to work for that adoption. The thing about adoption in the Roman times was that once you were given that, that was it. It was one final decision. And so God, in His grace, gifted us that spirit of adoption. So you may not have the ability to work your way out of that fear, to work your way under that bondage, and you don't have to because God's already given you the freedom. Once you've been adopted into his family, you can be free just like that. Under the name of Jesus, you are free. Amen. So, Alexander, you may be talking a lot in circles and saying a lot of things back to back. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that we are no longer slaves to the darkness of this world because we are citizens of heaven, free from the powers of the enemy and looking forward to that day where I can see my God face to face. Now, like I said earlier, Paul had two perspectives that he wrote. He wrote to the Roman perspective, making the comparison between adoption and slavery but what there's a lot to miss is that both of these are almost business transactions. There's something to gain for both parties in these things. To the Hebrew perspective, Paul makes some more interesting points. And don't lose me here. The Jewish people had no word during the times of the Old Testament for what adoption really was. But time and time again throughout the Old Testament, we see adoption. For example, when Sarah could not have a child with Abraham. She went through a, a type of means of trying to adopt a chi the child of Abraham and Hagar. Now, that didn't work out, but it was an example of it. Or Joseph, after he's been reunited, and I'm, I know I'm spoiling Joseph, Prince of Dreams, but once Joseph reunited with his family in Egypt, uh, I actually just spoiled Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoats. <laughs> But once Joseph is reunited with his brothers and his father, before his father Jacob's death, Jacob adopted Joseph's two youngest sons that were born in Egypt. And he did this, so, and they were able to receive equal portions of the inheritance Jacob would leave behind for his sons. He, he tells Joseph that your youngest sons will be reckoned as mine, is the language that he uses. So think about it this way. There is this idea of a name being carried on. We were given the name of Jesus over our lives. Being people, the, they were called the people of the name. The Hebrews were to honor Yahweh. In fact, they were tasked with being priests to all the nations because it would be through Israel that the Messiah would come into the world. Now that the Messiah has come into the world, we are all the people of the name. We are all called to make disciples, but what this means is that once you've been adopted, that means that you are tasked, that means that you are 
duty-bound to carry that name all throughout the earth. Matthew is over and over again reinforcing this idea that there is a kingdom that will usurp the Roman Empire, usurp all kingdoms on the earth, and it will be a kingdom of God. And we are tasked with carrying that name all throughout the world. If you are adopted, if you are, I say if you are adopted, if you are adopted into the kingdom of God, you carry the name of Jesus. We don't just speak the name of Jesus in our own time. We speak the name of Jesus all throughout the world. We are called to make disciples. We are called to build God's kingdom. That is the duty that comes with being a child of God. I may go over a little, just a little over rates, but I'm trying my very best. <laughs> but finally, one of my favorite aspects of this verse is that second to last word that is used all that is used in this passage. That is Abba. That's not just the disco band. Abba was an Aramaic term that essentially carries the same weight as a child saying dada. Now, not to shamelessly plug, but as, as y'all know, we have a kid on the way. And as my wife knows, I will do my very best to make sure that its first words are dada. <laughs> but this word was hardly ever used in reference to God. It was always used in this childlike way term of endearment for their father. I still, I still call my father Abba sometimes. <laughs> I'll just call dad like, hey Abba, how's it going? Happens all the time. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> but what Paul does here is he reframes the way that the Roman, uh, the Roman people were viewing their relationship with God. Yes, Roman adoption customs we're almost more of a business-like affair than anything. But what Paul does is he takes this and he turns it towards this tender relationship that a father would have with his child using the terms that the Jewish people would use for their parents, this Aramaic word. So parents love their children unconditionally. I hope mine do. <laughs> and they raise them. They care for them and do everything in their power to help them succeed in life. They have that unconditional love that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 7. It says that, which of you, what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? It says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? He touches on if, these, if our imperfect earthly parents do the best that they can, love their children unconditionally, they may not be perfect, but they will do their very best. How much more will our perfect God love us unconditionally? You see, we're not just taken into this for duty, and we are, but we're taken into this for a relationship for a God that loves us unconditionally. For a God that you can never force him to turn away. You can always turn to Jesus. He is always there for you. There is, there, is a per, there is a person that we know in St. Louis. And he uses this example often. His son, his son was born unable to speak. Unable, unable to, age, to mentally age past the age of four. And he only lived to be 12 years old. And he always talks of his son, Nathaniel, 
And he always says that if my son never won any awards, if my son never won the track, he never won a piano recital contest, he never won anything, he would still be my son, and that would be good enough. And that's how it is. You, don't, you are God's son. You are God's daughter. And that's all, and that's all that God asks you want to stand we have a God that loves us unconditionally we have a God that will always be there for you families on earth there's enough broken families on the earth to count the stars but there is a God that will love you unconditionally and so I just so I just want to charge you we are duty bound to carry that name of Jesus all throughout the earth. We are duty-bound to carry that unconditional love that God has shown you. And right now, I just want to take a moment. You're more than welcome to come to the front to respond to this word, to respond to God's unconditional love that he has for you, to respond to the duty that God has for you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your loving kindness. We have a God that we can turn to at any point. I never have, I know I may never be good enough, and that's okay because you call me your child. You make me good enough. Even when I stumble, you, turn, you pick me up. When there is that situation, that fear, that sickness, that disease, God, you can move in that situation. You can move in that situation, Lord. And I know that you can do that now for each person in this room. He can move in your situation tonight. He can move over that fear tonight. He can move over that condition tonight. There is nothing that is too powerful for the unconditional love of God. Thank you for joining us. And for more information, you can visit us at GoBethesda.com. You can also visit us in person at 15050 Daigle Road, Prairieville, Louisiana. Services are at 10 a.m. Sunday and 7 p.m. on Wednesday.